Welcome to No Challenges remaining live once again on center court, this time after Wimbledon is over and the grass, which was started out, as you'll recall, kind of brown <laughs> before the tournament, is now much browner uh, and everything is over. Courtney at Wimbledon, I'm Ben Rothenberg. You're Courtney Nguyen. Wimbledon is over. We have our winners, Simona Halep, Novak Djokovic, Barbara Schwarzman, Sue Eche, and uh, Cabal Farah, and I guess the mix is my Dottig and Letitia, mm-hmm. so good for them. Thoughts on everything that now is over and people are cleaning up. The mess at center court, which is, I will say, a lot of mess. Looking around, <laughs> it's not like a Japanese team no. locker room. Yes, you know, no, they're yeah. they're cleaning up. There's a lot of uh, empty pims uh, cups lying around. I see a lot of paper straws, a couple of uh, half drunk bottles of Badois, uh, as it were. As you know, you're gonna miss it so much. But yes, it's uh, a Wimbledon, I think, to remember because in a lot of ways, I feel like we saw a lot of things here over the fortnight that. It was a pleasure to witness. I will say, it wasn't women to remember. I feel like the men's tournament was not very good until, not memorable, I'll add, really until the last two matches, I guess, which was Federer and Nadal and then Federer Djokovic. Honestly, for me, we'll start with the men. The men's tournament, for me, was lousy. The only match was all, at all worth caring about was in the first 10 days with Nadal Kyrgios, which actually was pretty good and I think did live up to the hype. Um, and the expectations and the sort of the salt was there. There was a tremendous curios, you know, uh, peg attempt trying to drill <laughs> Nadal. And Nadal <laughs> said afterwards that he could defend himself, but was worried that he might, you know, kill an innocent person behind him or something. It, it was crazy response. That was one that got good. But the rest of it for me was the big three absolutely rolling. The quarter that was the irrelevant quarter or the open quarter to start with, which we called the open quarter, which the Anderson Zverev quarter fell apart. And we'd like to Batista Gook getting out. He played good tennis, but we've seen him before. He wasn't really a story per se here. Um, yeah, the, the men were just so unchallenged. I was covering the men on Manic Monday. I was just on the men's story. And I was like, okay, I'll track the big three. And they all won so easy. It was Nadal winning 2-2-2 and two against Joao Sosa. I think Djokovic won 3-2-3 three, and three against Ugo Umber. And then Kiri- Sorry, then Federer and Berrettini was supposed to be the best match of the day. And it was like... I forget the exact score, but it was like 1-3-1 and one or one something like that. It was not close at all. Um, and just, yeah, so for me, the big three rolled, and, it, and the next challengers, the next three in the rankings, 4-5-6, are Tsitsipas, not in this order, but Tsitsipas, team, and Zverev, and they all lost first round. Yeah. And it's just, to me, to me, the men's tournament was boring. I, w- I will say this. I think that this was a very good example of a tournament, and I think that we're going to see this more and more going forward, of a tournament where... It actually does an incredible disservice to the tournament to speak about it in terms of the men's event and the women's event. That at the end of the day, if you look at the tournament, the way that tournaments should look at themselves, which is as a gen- as a total product, yeah. you know, we, may, we make this argument all the time. There are reasons why tennis is better when the women and the men play together, whether it's a master's event, whether it's, you know, uh, master's and fives, whether it's uh, the slams. That, you know, where the men may have lacked in the first week, the women brought the stories, brought the headlines. Coco Goff pretty much dominated the entire discussion uh, over the first uh, seven days or so of the event. And then as the event got into, you know, the business end, it wasn't like the women's side was lacking at all. There were still great matches. But then, obviously, when you have a situation where the big three are dominating, 
and it's the big three against each other, which is what we thought was going to happen in terms of Nadal-Feder. And then Federer and Djokovic in the final. That's going to create a great event. But when you start to 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 kind of try and, and separate them and say one's better than the other at different times, I, I think that's where the, a disservice to this event actually kind of comes through. I mean, I think that as an event, as a total, as a total package, I thought it was great, right down to the mix with Serena and Andy. So, yeah. you know, there was a lot going on and there was a lot of drama. You have five-setter, you know, men's doubles match. Meanwhile, you have Stritzova and Shea dominating. You have an absolute masterclass from Simona Halep for 56 minutes. She which was is, so good. If you want to go minute by minute, was the best final. I mean, in terms of quality of play because of, of, of kind of how in and out, you know, the men's final was. Yeah. But obviously the men's final captured the imagination of the people. Um, it was dramatic in terms of how it finished, um, dramatic in terms of what was at stake. Not that the women's match wasn't, obviously, with 24 on the line. But as a package, I thought that this was one of the better slams. But once you start to parse it out, there are, there are ebbs and flows in terms of each event, you know what I mean? I think I think each should have a satisfying finish in some way, and I, I liked what you said. That was very, very positive. Like, Thanks, man. Spokeswoman for tennis. No, I want to rip on it. We all know how I feel. I don't want to. I do mean that in I a can't. good way. I mean... <laughs> I mean that in a good way, though. I mean, like, because, yeah, because these women, these women's and men's finals, and I agree, combined events are the best, and they, especially right now, the tours are so different in their rhythms, in their yeah. power structures, yeah. in their depth of depth versus, you know, greatness across the top. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, and, you know, when Rafa says something like, I am more than Barty, maybe, maybe people will agree with him. I don't know. But um, there is the women's final, which was a, a crazy great performance in a match that looking at the score you might think was a was a dud but was delivered that sort of like someone reaching absolutely yeah. there you know celine dion uh the titanic big moment you know what it I'm was talking about? simona Halle's megan rapino moment sure like yeah, you know what that. i mean in terms of like stand out there and be like this is arms, me this we're showing is, arms open this is what i can do this is what i'm capable of and and i'm imagining her with pino know. hair no, I don't, don't see do that. I don't, don't see do it. I don't, don't see it for her. Don't do the purple. Don't, I don't see it don't for do her. It. Anyway, anyway, she's at the, she's at the Champions Ball now, but she looks good. She looks amazing, uh, in, in her entire team looking in sleek black. But uh, yeah, I, I think that as a whole, I thought that this was was better than than Roland Garros. Yeah, um, agreed. I think as a whole, it was it was better than the Australian Open. Mm. Um, and I say this as a whole. I'm talking about every single discipline that was going on, right down to. You know, you have your first Japanese boys champion. You have uh, a big upset on the women's wheelchair with uh, Anique uh, defeating Didi de Groot. Uh, all these sorts of things where, where, as a whole, I, I really felt like this Wimbledon kind of brought it from an entertainment perspective. And whether we, it, it brings it from a sporting perspective in terms of the way that we are used to talking about tennis and, and, and talking about records and matches and, you know, Whatever I don't know, but but I, I genuinely felt like the, the the general public got what they bargained for uh, with this Wimbledon. Fair, I think for me thinking back, Australia I think was stronger, um, had more sort of cool storylines. I mean, golf obviously was was amazing. Golf is the biggest tennis story of the year so far, and I think it's like us for here being within this tennis bubble. I think it's almost sometimes hard to appreciate just how much she got outside the bubble, how she was like huge, like on the nightly news in the U.S. What she was doing, oh, beating massive. Venus Williams Absolutely first round, massive. making yeah, fourth yeah. round, and it was a sort of throwback kind of WTA. As someone's walkie-talkie goes off behind us, um, sort of a throwback WTA kind of story of like team prodigy that I haven't seen in my reporting career, of someone in the however many years, eight years I've been doing, it, we haven't had anything like this before, where someone that young is making sort of headline news at a Grand Slam, 
and shows also a lot of promise. It doesn't feel fluky. It didn't feel like, oh, the, you know, her draw was not the worst draw in the world, to be clear, even though she did beat Venus and then she beat uh, Rabarkova and then she beat Herzog. And actually Herzog played the best of the three opponents. That was actually a really good match. It was on the center court and she was getting enormous ratings. And everything. Let's just start with Coco, I guess. Like what, what should, what did you make of Coco's run? And uh, I don't know that you, if you had talked to her before or not. I hadn't spent much time with her. I, I did a very brief one-on-one with her after she made U.S. Open final in 2017 at 13 years old. Um, and, yeah, I mean, what, what, do you, uh, what do you make of Goff's arrival here in her debut and the attention she got and, and what people should expect in the near term from her? Yeah, I mean, I think that her, her arrival and the attention that she got was obviously well-deserved. I think the win over Venus, just, I mean, not necessarily because it was Venus, although obviously that is the big storyline, but just the way that she handled that occasion yeah. was really impressive. And that was the thing to me that stood out about Coco Goff's first week was just the composure and, and mentally and just kind of, I don't know, like uh, fortitude wise. I think that she's, she's wise behind beyond her years. I think game-wise, I was probably less impressed okay. than, than her actual, the way that she was ha- able to handle things and handle the moment and to play those matches incredibly well. And especially against Herzog, who, you know, threw the kitchen sink at her, also choked a little bit. We can't, you know, let's not get too carried away. I mean, Polona Herzog had that match in utter control before she, she, she kind of blinked a little bit. Um, but that was the biggest thing that, that impressed me the about poise, Coco yeah. was was the poise. And I think that that will obviously serve her well because... Those are the things that, you know, a lot of WTA fans get, you know, ride on the players about not having is that, oh, this person's a joker. This one gets nervous. This one. Well, Coco Goff didn't show any of that. It's um, one of the tougher things to teach. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so that innate uh, talent, which it is a talent, um, was evident throughout the first week. And, and so I think that it's absolutely deserved in that way. Um, I loved that she was able to kind of just capture the imagination of not just the American press, but the British press. I mean, her matches. World press. Yeah, the world, world press. press. The, the first week of uh, of the tournament was dominated by Coco. I mean, it, the BBC, their viewing numbers, it was Coco Goff's matches that were registering. Not, you know, Fetter or whatever. I mean, her. I think her match against... Uh, Herzog was number one, of the, number was one in the first one, week. Even more again, than, than Kyrgios like, Nadal. Which is, again like number 300 something Coco Goff against like number 65 Herzog and due respect to Herzog Herzog's bringing none of those viewers there herself right like that is that was a she's a phenomenon phenomenon Phenomenon. and so that's that's really great obviously we we wait and see um as anybody who listens to the podcast knows I'm I'm very uh bearish about about young talent oh god yeah you know like I'm very cautious because I think that in a lot of ways especially with all the discussion about age eligibility rules and all this discussion of people who are very self-interested, who want this age eligibility rule kind of to be, you know, Coco Goff exempt out of those, you know, I would just remind them, first of all, that, that the, the field of WTA talent that has been impacted by what it was like to be a full-time pro before they were 18 years old is still prevalent and still a part of us. And those players who did play under age elig- eligibility restrictions uh, still also had an incredible amount of injury when they came out of it. Bianca Andreescu tore up her shoulder. CeCe Bellis is not on tour because her arm is, is busted. Belinda Bencic uh, was off. But Anna Kanyu, Ash Barty freaking left. Uh, Naomi Osaka has won two majors, number one, at 21 years old, and people think she's too fragile. So I don't really understand why people are looking at a 15-year-old and thinking that she is somehow special, that she can somehow manage it. And maybe she can, but... If you have the ability to 
you know, protect even one player from potential burnout, physical or mental. I think it's your responsibility to do it. And the, on the only final point that I'll make about all this age eligibility discussion is that I mean, and I speak, I say this as a, this is my personal opinion. This is not, I'm not speaking for the tour. Yep, as I'm always speaking, on this show. Yeah, as always, which people forget. I'm not speaking for the tour. My personal opinion is that you have a rule in place that the WTA has put in place that literally handcuffs the WTA. The WTA would want nothing more. I mean, I would want nothing more to be able to sell a 15-year-old tennis phenom to the world. But we are, we've gone through... The tour has gone through with um, our social, our, our medicine people, our science people, psychologists. Have, psychologists have brought in experts who say that that players under 18, by and large, cannot deal with this. So, I mean, I think that the, that people should take that into account, like especially in a sport where, as we have seen, particularly in 2019, that people deal in very self-interested, like padding their own pockets kind of ways. Like there's a lot of self-dealing in this sport. Um, and conflicts of interest in the sport, you literally have an instance where somebody, a federation, could could s use their conflict of interest to benefit itself, mm -hmm. and yet, based off of all the information that it's received, has said, no, we will not do it, and we're going to leave this money and this interest and all these eyeballs and everything on the table in the safety, in the the idea of safety for these, for these kids. And, and I liked what Sloan Stevens had to say about Coco Goff, which is like, it's amazing what she's done as a kid, but she's still a kid. And I think that that's, that, that does matter. Um, and like I said, if it means that we lose 20 teenage phenoms who could win slams, but it means that we save one teenage phenom that doesn't burn out and turn to, to a troubled life and all that sort of stuff, then I think that it's pretty, it's pretty okay to give up on, on the 20 that could win slams before they're 18 years old, especially when you have a finalist in this uh, this uh, Wimbledon final who's 37 and still kicking. And Serena was also one of the first generations yeah. affected by the age of, like Venus wasn't and Serena was. And that's like the exact moment when it came in in the tour. And yeah, Serena's still here and still doing well. So I think she's, She's okay with it, and uh, yeah, so we'll see. And the other thing is, like, with, and I don't need to go too, I think you said a lot of things I would mostly co-sign there. You know, golf is still going to get to play. Like, it's not, it's not like she's being handcuffed to a pole and being told to wait somewhere. She has seven she, more events until she turns 16, she'll, and then she'll, she'll, be at the U, she'll be at the U.S. Open. Like, this is basi basi it's basically saying, like, sorry, Coco, you won't be able to play, like, Quebec City right. or, like, Tianjin or whatever other small tournaments players for her ranking might want to play slow that down but everyone thinks she's here to stay with her game and with her poise and with her potential to talk hi yeah i mean again like I'm, I'm like you i don't like banging the hype drum too loud at all for kids who are so young we didn't write about her the new york times really until she made the main draw here was gonna play venus that's when we decided to do it um and before that like you know espn did a play you know a profile for when she was 12 was the next big thing like that that i've never been into that kind of stuff when she really hadn't done anything that point and it's just i feel like it leaves nowhere good to give the kids that much attention so early and that much expectation but you know at the same time people in this sport a lot of them clearly know how to recognize talent and know how to spot these kids we've seen this with coco we've known her name for years we said that before the tournament uh even someone like felix oj aliasim we'd heard about for years before he started even playing junior slams so there is radar there that works but at the same time just chill because like honestly once they get here they're not going anywhere like Friggin' Roger Federer is still here. Roger Federer played his first... Okay, I've tweeted out the intro song to Wimbledon 1989 with their intro video for it. And someone was like, you know, 1989, it's closer to Roger Federer's first Wimbledon title than we are now. 
And I was like, oh. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's crazy. In 2003. Yeah, no, so. I mean, I, th- I think that the, the, I would, yeah. I mean, I've said what I had to say on it. I, I think that there is a worrisome, if people want to dig into it even more, and I'm not going to call people out by name, but there are definitely people who are out there who are, are advocating for this uh, this exemption for Coco Golf for lamenting the existence of the AER, who, you know, also in their same breath, in public comments, in comments that have been reported publicly, who also say, if she burns out, so what? And that is a significant red flag to me. I, I, that is a very, very big problem to me. And that is the biggest indicator to me that there are people who are out there who aren't looking for the benefit and, and, and looking out for this kid, A, and secondly, not looking out for the sport in general. Because I think that at the end of the day, we would rather have a Coco Goff who is successful from 18 to 35 than mm-hmm. we do having a Coco Golf that's successful from 17 to 21. Yeah, or 15 to 21. Right, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, so. Um, Coco Golf lost in the third round to fourth Simone. Round. Fourth round, excuse me. Fourth round to Simona Halep. Just want to segue to Halep. Let's talk about Halep. Simona Halep won Wimbledon. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like, I had to say, I never felt like she was as bad. Because I remember her 2014 run to the semis here pretty well. After she made French Open finals, she made semis here, playing pretty well, was... In a very tight match with Jeannie Bouchard in that semifinal, which she still hates talking about. And then she rolled her ankle and lost the match. Um, which she won, I don't know, it was probably a 50-50 kind of match, but that definitely turned it, the turned ankle. Uh, and so she comes here. She Honestly, I didn't watch a ton of her in this tournament, even though she did have a couple signature wins against Azarenka, which went honestly too quick for me to watch it. It was like 3-1. and one. It was over so fast. And then... Golf, I watched some of it once. It seemed like she was in control. It was actually a really good match, the, the Halep Golf match. Was yeah, it was. Probably Halep's, Golf's best match in some ways, um, which is encouraging. And then she rolled on. She beat Zhang, who had beaten her the last couple times a few years ago. Uh, came back from 1-4 down in the first set, I believe, to win that 6-1. and one. And then rolled over Alina Svitolina. First time semifinal as a Grand Slam. Svitolina, hey. Finally got it. Broke that duck. Finally got for, it. Good for you, Alina. And 1-3. and three. And then, again, Beat uh, Serena Williams two and two. Played unreal defense. People were raving about Simona's defense. Honestly, I mean, people. And Simona was great. To be clear, she was so good. It was nothing that felt to me like playing like treeing or playing outside of herself. To me, it almost made me think like, well, people really haven't watched Halep. And this is amazing because like Halep kind of does this. It's kind of like, to me, it felt like Halep playing within herself. I don't know. Do you disagree with that? Do you think Halep was? unbelievably yeah. you've seen so much Halep I, I did and I watched all of her matches here at, at Wimbledon as all well. this to say before I finish that she won she lost only four games against each of Azarenka Svitolina and Serena that's unreal it's pretty good and um you know I think that there, there's a few things about the Halep run that that need to be highlighted first of all every single one of the matches that she played um barring maybe Svitolina but you can make an argument that existed there was that there was adversity in her first match against Sasnovich who Sasnovich beat Kvitova yeah I don't think that this was an easy draw people look at it no definitely not but but like I know that she didn't face she didn't face a seated player until Svitolina but the players that she faced are players that would cause her problems so Sasnovich who beat Kvitova here uh last year in three sets she was Simona was got the first set and was down two five in the second she reeled off five straight games Second round, Buzernescu had never faced a Romanian at a slam, won that in three sets. Um, Good stat. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> a third round, obviously, uh, Azarenka. Azarenka jumped out to a fast 3-1 lead and was bashing the ball. Simona reeled her in. Vika contributed. She kind of unwound, but Simona put that pressure on to cause that unwinding. Yeah. Um, so it ended up being a, a much easier scoreline than one would have thought if you watched the first four games. 
after that Zhang Shui, which is where I was convinced that she would go out. Golf, by the way. You skipped oh, golf. golf, sorry. Golf, which was a huge spotlight kind which of circus match. And trap, you know, like nobody yeah. wants to lose to a 15-year-old. Yeah. You're on center court. There's like very little scouting on her. Everybody's yeah. rooting for the kid. Yeah. She t- Business-like performance to win three and three. Then Zhang Shui in the quarterfinals. Amazing tournament, by the way, by, for Zhang Shui, who had never won a main draw match here at Wimbledon, makes her makes a quarterfinal. But down 1-4, had to save four break points in that 1-4 game and ended up winning that match in straight sets. Svinolina, like, lengthy opening two, three games, two games in particular, um, and was able to, to again, just, like, outthink Svinolina and play in a tactical way that was a different way that she had played against Svinolina before. And then against Serena, where no one had picked Simona to win that match unless you were a highly partisan Romanian. Everybody was like, that's Serena in two, maybe three. And uh, especially the way that Serena had played this tournament, which I was incredibly impressed. She's getting thought, better and better. I thought that I thought that she had that final, and I and this is where, even between Simona and I, we disagree because I asked her quite frankly about the question that you placed, which is, which is Simona, did you play out of your comfort zone, this tournament, and especially against Serena, or, or is this the new normal? And she said, you know, my confidence kept growing, and, and it just felt normal by the time I, I made the final. But I have to say, as an independent outside observer. I think she played absolutely the best match of her career against Serena. I did not think that she could hold that level of what she was doing with the defense, plus playing offensively, like really opening up points, going down the line with the backhand and the forehand. Three unforced errors in an entire match. Which is, as far as anyone can tell. Never broken? As far as anyone can tell, it's a record. Yep. By the way, you know whose record she broke for fewest errors in a Grand Slam final eugenie bouchard that's right yes Eugenie bouchard only hit four because she didn't have time to hit anymore she, but she well, got beat Petra by, didn't let her, the ball yeah. hit her racket yeah basically I mean, so it's a little bit different but very different very different unbelievable but. performance from simona halep and uh unbelievable fortnight honestly i no. it's it's crazy to me that simona has now won which arguably was the hardest one which is the one that she wanted which is roland garros yep. as her first and now has won the, the one, one she that's, least expected that felt the furthest away and then you're looking at this player who has constantly led the tour in hardcourt wins and hard, you know, all that. And, she, and she's obviously made the AO final. Some people can argue that she should have won that, if not for some bad luck. Uh, U.S. Open 2015, she played uh, Panetta to potentially play Vinci or Serena. I mean, yeah. we can all talk about what happens if Simona wins that earlier match. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And it, it's a result that makes you think this kid really could finish her career with five or six majors, in my opinion. Well, here's the thing. For me, like, this was very much not that I'd ever really thought about it too much, but and people, some people don't care about this topic, others do. Like, the Hall of Fame thing, this is one that absolutely clinched it for her because already, and I said this with, like, Wozniacki, and Wozniacki won her first slam. But, like, Simona had all these other things in her resume. Finishing two years at number one, and I'm not, where is she on the race now this, this year? Two. Number two. Okay, so, on Monday. Okay, so very possible that she finishes another year at number one. Yeah. Three years in Rose Simona Halep. I feel like people are sleeping on this lady. People don't who, realize how good she's been. Yes. People, people, 100%. Yeah. People, people, I feel like, don't talk about her like someone's about to finish her third straight year at number one. And granted, okay, until yesterday, she only won one slam, and that's what people look at in the sport these days. I understand that. But if that's what you're all you're looking at, you're not paying attention. Because Simona way. Halep does things that are good. She is... According to my rough math, mm-hmm. which is terrible, You're not despite my last name yeah. <laughs> um, and my ethnicity, but um, she is only a few hundred thousand away from overtaking Caroline Wozniacki in the all-time prize money board at number four, which would put her behind Serena, Maria, Venus, and then there would be Simona Halep. 
that gives you an idea. Obviously, we talk about inflation. Obviously, prize money has increased over the years. But that gives you an idea that she is performing at the biggest tournaments, you know, consistently. That she's getting that money because it's not Petra. We, you know, when we talk about the, the titles that have been won the last two years, we think of Petra. When we think about consistency, sometimes we think about Pliskova. Kerber. We think of, or Kerber or Svitolina. Yeah. Minus slam money, right? But to do what she's done, no, but really, yeah, I, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's three slam finals she's made in the last two years, and she's won two of them. Yeah. She lost the first three, now she's won the last two. And she did the one thing that I think a lot of people, including maybe myself, I would probably put in this category, didn't think she could do, which is A, not win Wimbledon. I, I, I was always, much like you, quite bullish about her chances at Wimbledon, but to beat Serena as well as I thought Serena was playing, the way that she did out here... And to do it in a big match, in a big final, because everybody always thinks that that's kind of the weird asterisks on people. Like, yeah. oh, okay, you won that, but you didn't have to beat Serena. Yeah. But if you, I mean, this is the Kerber phenomenon. Yeah. Like, Angie's done it twice. Garbinia yeah. has done it once. So we kind of see them as more legitimate. Yeah, totally. Than no, the Serena, players who have Serena is still a test in that you got to pass in the sport. And, and for her to do it here, and I will say, I was out here watching this match from largely thinking of it from an American Serena 24 perspective. Serena was unreal, to be clear. Serena, I thought, at times, pulled up or didn't do yes. things as well. There were a couple times where she got ahead in rallies, was at the net, and just did something dumb. Whether it was, like, a miss, and, like, dumb meaning tight, like, understandable, just, like, unideal. This wasn't the best Serena. No, There's definitely no not. Way a couple times where she just guided that. shots that were still kind of within Simona's she reach was... and let Serena, kept Simona in points. She felt a little bit too, like, eager to play, like, capital T tennis, like, sort of beautiful point construction As and like to like just and bash down right. the door she did not bash on the door there was not a lot of like screaming stomping serena power tennis that sometimes you know she has done with great effect to, to like what she did on this same court to like sharapova 2012 wimbledon uh, olympics final like that was not anywhere in sight against simona and the biggest i think um indicator of that is that she hit two aces. Yeah, and they so were you know, late. And they were late. It took her until like about a set and a half until she hit her first ace. And, you know, and some of that obviously we can credit to Simona because I think that she was reading the Serena serve very well. Yeah. But I also think that when Serena's serving well, it just doesn't matter like what you're, yeah. how well you're reading it. So yeah. it was a little bit of Simona, but but to only hit your first ace a set and a half into a final. It was like a 2 for 4, Serena, two four it was in the, the two second. Four game, yeah. Her last service um, game. That's, that's a bit of an indicator that it wasn't, it wasn't her best day, which it wasn't. But that she definitely, as per most of Serena's, even the last, um, you know, two slams against Osaka in New York and Kerber here, she does make that second set push. She might start slow and she might give away that first set in a bad way. But there is this push at some point. Serena levels up. And in every single instance, her opponent has been able to 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 tread the water and to beat her back into submission where... By the time that Serena, you know, it was it was five two up or whatever. That's uh, Serena didn't look like she believed she could win the match, no. and that was really where I don't know. You kind of sat up a little bit, and you're just like, okay. I, I mean, it I felt different. I mean, it it felt this, different. this was yeah. to me the worst slam final loss of Serena's career. It was statistically only four games, less than an hour. Um, the one against Stoser, 2011 U.S. Open was two and three, I think, but that one was also like that one was came a little was a little more stunning like i feel like she just didn't expect to play that well this one she, i loved what she said about simona before the match where she was like simona I basically basically said simona kick my ass in singapore so hard i'll never forget it and i will always be aware of how good she is then and then 
I came out watching this match, and I was kind of like, but Serena, you, you look like you're kind of sleeping on Simona here a little bit, like just underestimating the speed, thinking you can get away with things you can't get away with. You know, granted, obviously, she had barely played this year until this tournament. It's a great achievement for her to make the final. But at the same time, I have to think Serena is so sick of moral victories at Grand Slams <laughs> yeah. when she just wants to win one and has made three finals now, first time in her career ever losing three slam finals in a row. Uh, it's tough. And, and again, like last year here, not U.S. Open, because U.S. Open, she had a pretty decently tough draw last year, um, beat Venus, beat Pliskova. But this time here, she only really had one test, per se, in the draw, I think, which was risk. Okay. I bat back a little bit on that because I think Gerges was, was a t- because Gerges played really well. well. Yeah, that was a great and match. And so people think that they look at the scoreline, they're like, oh, Serena rolled. It's like, no, there were 30 all games or reduced games, and Serena came up with something special yeah. in order to get those. And to, 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 to Yeah, so I would say Gerges and risk, yeah. for sure. So, yeah, so it was not it was a medium kind of run, not the toughest, and Schutzeva did not play a good semifinal against her. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Barbara Schutzeva, by the way, who made semifinals this slam first time. Can we talk about... Not Shrestava. Well, you want to say something about Shrestava? I have thoughts. I'm going to talk about that match afterwards. I, I mean, I obviously adore Barbara Shrestava. I'm super happy for her to have this, like, you know. WT number not, one doubles. I mean, you're talking about Barbara Shrestava, yeah? A player that a lot of people in their heads probably think of as, like, a little bit of a journey woman player. Yeah. Like a top 30, top 40. A B team check. A B team check. Um, and you look at her resume. Fed Cup champion multiple times, yeah? Olympic gold medalist. No. Silver medalist. Bronze. Bronze? I think bronze. Crap. Well, Was still it? pretty good. Uh, yeah. In, in uh, Rio? Yeah, I think that they got bronze because I think that it was the oh. Russians beating the Swiss in the in the gold medal match. Yes, okay. So bronze. Bronze um, is beautiful. T- but beautiful. But Olympic medalist. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, now a uh, Wimbledon semifinalist in singles. Uh, now finally has her, her, her Grand Slam doubles title. Um, and is going to be world. Uh, that's a gr- number one on Monday. That's a great career. Great career. A great career. And for a player who openly talked about maybe it's her last time. Like yeah. She's like, she's 33, I guess. And feeling, you know, she's been on tour for a long time. She won. This is how old she is. And I'm not, not to say that she's ancient because it's not by any normal standards mm-hmm. of society or even, you know, compared to either of us. But she won the O2 Australian Open against Sharapova in the junior final. Yes. And then Sharapova won, like, Wimbledon, like, seniors a couple years later. Like, she won a junior match against somebody who won a Grand Slam women's title 15 years ago. Yeah. So that will make you feel like you've been around a while when that happens to you. But, uh, yeah, you, you just, you're, you're very, I mean, at least for myself, speaking personally as somebody who covers Barbara, who, who yeah, she's just incredibly kind. I mean, I, I oh, think that gosh. there's so many. We were just there's talking about this. this. W- yeah, we were just talking about this. There's just this weird kind of disconnect, obviously, because I understand. I mean, she's on court. She has a little emotional meltdown. She she seems like a jerk sometimes on court. Yeah. You know, all these sorts of things, the way that you can interpret it. But behind the scenes, she's, she is incredibly gracious, like probably the most gracious in terms of like asking you what's going on, like recognizing you, saying hello, like just like incredibly kind human. Yeah. So, I'm, so I'm very, very happy for her that, that she's been able to achieve this during a time where she said like this could be it. We and, should get her on the show. Yeah. She'd be good. She's good. Let's do that. Um, Barbara Schutzova Sh- won her quarterfinal against Joanna Conta. Yes. Joanna Conta had a good run here after having a good run at the French Open where she lost to Vondrosheva. Uh, she lost what you were saying in one of the many discussions that we had that evening after that match. 
um, to a sort of similar kind of player, uh, a, a player who can keep the ball low and out of her comfort zone, and Stritseva. Um, and Kanta had a uh, an exchange in her press conference. Do you want to talk about this? Sure. Okay. Exchange in her press conference with a exporter with Express named Matt Dunn, who um, Kanta, I will say, I do think this deserves prefacing before we getting into the exchange itself. Kanta, like in Fran French Open, and honestly, like in the last few years, Kanta is very sort of particular and decided on what she wants to say and not say in press conferences. She comes in there with generally a fairly clear line of thought and a clear line of, this is my take on this match. This is how I'm going to present myself. I know how they will take the smallest thing and run with it in this, in this country, especially, you know, fair or unfair, whether Billie Jean King said that or didn't say that. Billie Jean King did not say that, by the Never way, for the record. It. Never said this for me. should stop fighting for equality. That's the most ludicrous Billie Jean like, King made-up quote. But he, okay, sidebar yeah. about this Billie thing with, 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 with Serena. I feel really how do you? Yeah, 100%. But how do you hear somebody say in a question, Billie Jean King believes that you should not fight for equality. And, okay, tennis Twitter, we're a cynical bunch. All y'all think that we're shit at our jobs. Yeah. All y'all think that every journalist is shit at their jobs. How is it that when the, somebody asks that question, you buy into the idea? Oh, well, obviously, Billie Jean King said that. How does that not raise a red flag of, like, there's no effing way that Billie Jean King said that? And, like, do a little bit of research. It's unbelievable to me the number of people if Serena who are cynical Twitter people who don't trust anything yeah. genuinely believe that Billie said this. Billie, uh, I was stunning. there. I was at this Fed Cup roundtable where she did this interview, and she said basically that Serena should consider taking time off from her celebrity schedule and sort of would, like i assume things like met gala various magazine covers oscars whatever and you can say that's fair or unfair to say that and that's kind of the same thing that chris ever said chris in that open letter, letter yeah, yeah, said yeah, sure. decades ago and just say the basic quality <laughs> and no but billy jean king my god like the idea of saying billy jean king is anti someone speaking up for quality is was so nuts and passed so little smell test that just stunk up the room and if Serena was in a different setting, like a more thoughtful, like slower setting than a press conference, I'm sure even Serena would have been like, Billy said what? Billy didn't right. say that. <laughs> Come on. Because uh, Billy and Serena know each other for a long time. And that was just, that was a that was a bogus moment. But anyway, so back to Kanta. She comes into this press conference, starts talking about how she played, very, her opponent played really well. She was complimenting Schutz of a constant saying Schutz was very good at asking questions that are tough to answer in a very British way of saying it, saying that, you know, she keeps, you know, balls low or whatever and things are tricky and just, just too good for me today. And and the, you've probably seen the exchange by now, but the, pre the reporter said, oh, you know, you, that's all well and good, but you made 33 unforced errors. And there's at one time you hit a smash and it was right back at her and you did this wrong and did that wrong. Now, don't you think you should, you know, take some responsibility for yourself and say, I did things unwell and, and Conta responded saying, that's in your professional tennis opinion, which is like, not the best, whatever. That, I don't even care about that as a response. And then he was like, well, you know, presumably you want to get better and win Grand Slams. And it was all patronizing and stuff. And there was this whole take within the media room of was this bad, was this fair, was this within bounds, out of bounds, asshole-ish, just part of him doing his job. My take is that it's going to be both. Um, what is it a fair question not a fair question where do you come down on it Courtney this was what they sort of a f the flash moment of the press in, in yeah, this tournament I mean for me I think and I, I don't think that this is controversial to anybody that's listened to this podcast I don't really criticize anybody else's questions I think that the shittiest question can get a great response oh, so yeah. who am that. I good to say that that's a good question or a bad question and at the end of the day this led to a an exchange that went viral everywhere and 
Whatever. Um, I think that it was a little bit of a circling of the wagons that was happening so quickly afterwards about like, oh, well, he has, you know, and I got into exchanges with other, you know, British reporters about it who completely misinterpreted my tweets um, because they were like, well, you said, I was like, no, I didn't say that anything was wrong with it. I just said that, you know, if you go back and look, that's not what I said, but um, just pointing to the absurd, the absurdity of the exchange and how familiar that sort of situation of feeling like you're articulating as a woman that you're articulating yourself well that somebody's coming at you and just demanding more of you than you are willing to give them and somehow it results in in that moment where you're just like what is your problem like like i've said what i've said like that's what it is and you know one of the discussions that i had with one british reporter who was just like well but you know the question is absolutely fair i was like i didn't argue that the premise is unfair like, the premise of the question is fine. Like, if you guys want to ask her, like, really? Like, if you want to push back on a player, challenging, feel free. Challenging, challenging, challenging the, the sort of Kanta, which, you know, I will happily call the sort of Kanta, like, propaganda machine of herself, where she, she has these very specific takes on her matches. And she's very, and you see this with her on court and her own mentality. Kanta is very drilled into, I think about tennis a certain way, I think about my career a certain way, and it's not flexible. And, sure. and that, to me, has gotten her incredible results, like, in the last few years. Like, you can't argue with what Kanta's done in her career in this late stage, because she's been around for a while before she'd done anything of note at Grand Slams at these tournaments. And she has found a way to achieve these great results. And, okay, yes, they're not winning Grand Slams. And you might say, oh, I've never heard of this. They called her, like, a Czech nobody in one headline. That, who, unseated nobody. Unseated nobody who According she lost to. The to. Sun. Yes. And, like... That so that if that's your take, like oh, our great players should not be listening to unseated nobody. Like okay, that just to me seems lazy. When you when you can look at the kind of tennis that both Vondrosheva and Kanta played against her, and yes, could Kanta have done things better in those matches? Sure, but almost everyone who loses a match can do things better in said match. Yeah, and, yeah, and 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 so challenge, challenging the premise of the question, I would say that's of, fine. But that's being fine. a dick about it and people defending him for being as condescending as he was in this question. By saying, "Oh, it's just and this is what defense we both heard several times." Oh, it's a tabloid reporter. You know, suppose that's that's not the beginning of an excuse to me. Obviously, I feel like in the U.S., I can happily say we have a far less corrosive media culture in print. We are not there to make headlines to bring people down to sort of have these like ramping, you know, just like tearing people down parties that they have as, as sort of um, they sort of circling the wagons in a bad way. Don't even it's like circling sharks uh, that they have from British media over the smallest drops of blood. Like, whatever Katie Bolter's, you know, French Open withdrawal was. Like, who cares that she withdrew and is ranked 110th or whatever and got half her prize money? Let her get her money. Let her get her money. She's a, she's a new player who's trying to get her money that she earned by her ranking. And y'all are crucifying it for her because you feel like there's been inconsistencies in her story. Who cares? Who cares, Mike? It's only, it's only Roger Federer again. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? No one cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. That's what it is. And, and all this to say, just like, just... It's, it's not worth it to, 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 to be, yeah, it, it was not, bad. It's not about the not worth it. I mean, it, it is multi-layered because it's like if you are in a position where you've covered Joe regularly, you yeah. have an established relationship with her, and you decide in that moment, I'm cashing in my chips, I'm going to push you on it. I mean, I do this all the time. Yeah. I mean, I... I don't ask fluff questions. I get questions. so excited when you do it, when I know that, like, because you, cause you, cause you generally are, like, <laughs> you know, captain rapport with players. And at the same time, you also say something like, but come on. Like, when you do it, I, do. I, I get excited. I, I know, excited. but I do. Yeah, you do. I, mean, I you do, do do it. You do. And, and because I also know that I have the relationship with the player where 
they will understand. I'm not coming at credibility. you, but, I, but I'm call, I'm asking you. Like, you know, I've seen yeah. all your matches. I know what you do, and I know when you play well, and I know you when you play shit. And I'm asking you, you really think you played well today? Like, really? Do you? Like, you know, that sort of thing. And and so in an instance where maybe the, like Joe knows the player or the reporter a little bit better, maybe she doesn't take as much offense to it. Um, I don't know. But I do think that, you know, there is this idea that, that was being kind of uh, pushed my way that, you know, she didn't, what, at least according to the one conversation that I had, which was a very detailed conversation, but with a British reporter, that, well, but she didn't say what we wanted her to say is effectively what that person's response was. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, she needed to say this. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't get to lose your temper with a player because they don't say what you want to say. They don't say the thing that you need them to say in order to sustain your narrative. At the end of the day, we're all trying to find truth, and the player is trying to tell you what they want to do. You talk about a player who, you know, especially from their perspective, gets nervous. That's their whole narrative on her. Is that she gets nervous that she, you know, she can't deal with the pressure, but so does everybody. That's the definition of a trap match. That was a trap match. Yeah. It's easy to stand on center court and play Petra Kvitova and go pound for pound in a game that works for you, which is that you love pace and you feed off pace. It's a completely other thing to beat Petra Kvitova, step back on center court, plays Barbara Stritseva, a wily veteran who's made a quarterfinal here in the past, who puts the ball in uncomfortable positions that will not give you pace, and ask you to do the same thing. It's just like, it almost like the uproar, almost like you're telling on yourself that you don't know. Right, like even just back in the Vondrusheva Roland Garros, Vondrusheva who's beaten Hallett twice this year, Vondrusheva who had like was the most winning player since the Australian Open going yep. into the French mm -hmm. Open, and and you think that Joe's just supposed to step on the court and blow this kid away? Yeah. There's a reason why this kid is winning all these matches. There's a reason it's why, why she's around there's people. Also, why there's sports? I mean, my <laughs> goodness. If honestly going back to Serena, if Serena had won every match she was supposed to win in these Grand Slam finals, she would be at mm, 26 now. Yeah. She's still at 23 because you have to go out there and play the match. And even if you're supposed to beat somebody on paper, it means bubkiss oftentimes when it's at a Grand Slam match and a pressure pack match for you. Like, yeah, all this is to say, I, yeah. The, the, it was a weird moment. It was a weird moment. And I was glad. I was, I was glad ways. that Joe stuck up for herself. Yeah, I was glad that she also called out the question, which was incredibly obnoxious. And I know I don't think there's any license you have as a tabloid reporter to be a jerk to somebody. I do think that that's such a weird, reflexive response that I get from a lot of people in in the UK, which yeah. is like whenever something weird happens in a press, well, that's a tabloid reporter, it's and bad. they just like dismiss it. I had I had a report, and I'm like, but that doesn't count. Like when I was tweeting the Sun headline about calling sorts of an unseated nobody, people were like, oh, but that's a Sun. It's a trash rag. Nobody reads it. It's like, do you understand how the internet works? You might not read it, but when I Google Joe Conta Barbara Stritseva, or if I Google Barbara Stritseva, or if I Google Joe Conta, it's one of my things, and, and I read it, and I have and no context. And some, also, somebody else who just gets that paper at their, at their tube station or whatever and picks it up and reads the match, and it says, oh, Conta lost to a nobody. They're not comparing multiple sources and fact-checking that with WTA Insider, which they should because that's great content. But, <laughs> no, they're not. There's, respon there's responsibility in the platform, and the thing, not that we're too preach about journalism too much at times. So I don't think we really are that often. Here we could be. But because, we do take our job seriously. Yes, we do. And, and, and there is on some level a little bit of kind of like... And there's this weird, there's, dis this there's this weird dissonance in Britain with about it, too. like people who don't. Yeah, I agree with that. And also... There, Which is, I guess, a little bit hoity-toity and wrong, and people can come at me for it, but... There was a yeah. story that was written in one of the papers, and I saw it on their website, 
um, ah. that was that ripped off a bunch of quotes from an interview I did with about Wimbledon here uh, and didn't attribute them at all. And I messaged the person who's the correspondent for, for the tennis correspondent who I know well from this British paper and messaged him being like, what is this? Like, I don't know who these people are. Who There's like two women's names at the bottom. Like, I didn't recognize their names, but like there's like no attribution in this at all. Like that would be nice. You know, these like one-on-one interviews I did. And they're like, oh, that's the news division. You know, can't try controlling them during Wimbledon. That's just crazy. And it's like, Oh my God! Like that I would never have that dismissive tone, and like, is like and like, really and just like, and just, and just like, and just like the inmates run the asylum over there. We can't help it. The helplessness of it all is again well, the not of responsibility yeah. and accountability. Like yeah. if you're not accountable as being like the chief tennis correspondent, or if you're not accountable as being one of the major newspapers, regardless of whether you're a newspaper or a tabloid in the UK, like who who bears the responsibility and who bears the burden? Control your people to be to be accurate and to be at least in good faith operating and if that's your opinion that's your opinion and that's fine like everyone's entitled to their opinion and that's what i think joe actually said quite articulately in that interview which was if i've said what i've had to say i've told you what i think about the match you've asked me i've answered your questions if you disagree with me you're in more in, than, in, than than entitled to do that you can go write your story and your column saying that i'm you know that that i'm choker and blah 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 but i don't have to say it like why no. do you think that i have to say it I if to i don't believe it down. They literally want her to sit there and like castigate herself in front of the nation. And this is a country where, again, remember Anne Kiyothavong? About a decade ago, it was like she broke down in tears in Wimbledon after a first or second round loss. And it was literally to the response to the question of like something like, what do you have to say to the nation? Or how do you think you've let down Britain? Oh, my Lord, we do not have that nonsense in America. It's about you. Jack yeah. Sock loses. I do not think about the impact on the flag of like when Jack Sock loses. It is neither here nor there. And same when Serena steps out on the U.S. Open court and she doesn't win. I don't think that somehow it is somehow a failure to the American public. It's a failure to her. And it's about her career. But it's it's just such a different way of seeing the sport. Yeah. It's fascinating. No, totally. Totally, totally. Um, and it's not just, I will say, it's not just Britain. A lot of countries treat it incredibly nationalistically and whatever but it only because i understand english yeah that's the problem I that's the problem obviously more this sensitive is, this to is the here. problem here i've thought this before like part of the problem that i have with britain is that i understand things here if it was like in france italy yeah i wouldn't france. The france, they could be ridiculous Germany. i wouldn't know i wouldn't know i wouldn't know i wouldn't know but wouldn't here know. i know and i don't always like it um <laughs> other sh- random shout out shout out to carolina mukova who made a quarterfinal uh, here and like charmed uh, yeah people she- paid attention to carolina mukova finally and we're like, she's amazing. I was like, yes, yeah, she is. Yeah, so she I'm looking is. forward to it. Uh, she beat Pliskova. Rebel Wilson's BFF. Yes, Pliskova <laughs> lost to her 13-11 in a oh, final Carolina. set. That was frustrating. Oh, uh, that's, this could have been Pliskova's tournament. Just still think so. Um, but I say, that, I say that more and more now, and it's disappointing to me. Um, other women's thoughts? Uh, no, I think we're good on the ladies. Uh, Ash Barty lost uh, as number one to Risk in a good match. Uh, Allie Risk. Allie Risk had a great, Allie great Risk. old tournament. Like, and finally, unbelievable. like we 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 knew that she we done knew that Ali Risk could mow the lawn. Absolutely, and she won Sir Token Bosch this year. She was somebody who we absolutely if you, when you were going through that group of death quarter, you had to name Risk even though she was unseated. You had to name Risk as being one of the reasons this quarter is a problem. And she was the only one in the quarter who actually had to play that sort of murderer's row yeah, lineup yeah, the entire yeah. way. Um, Vekic first Vekic round. Vekic first round. Jorovic was not the toughest round, but she's still 9-7 in the third. Bench is third and Barty. And so yeah. Barty, both Barty and Serena both avoided most of the murderers in their section. Although Bar- Williams, Serena did play uh, Gerges 
but still, uh, Ali Risk was one who did the heavy lifting and the heavy chopping and, and was in that match very competitively against Serena. Could have won it. Uh, good to see her do well. Final uh, eight club, baby. Final eight club. She, she's having a good time and she's getting married, married this soon. Week, yeah. So, yeah, good for her. Congratulations. Mazel tov. Mazel to Ali to and Ali Steven. and Steven Armitage. Uh, yeah. Um, let's go to the dudes. Okay. Um, let's start with the dude final. This dude final took nearly five hours. It was pretty good theater. The tennis like quality for me was kind of was kind of all over the place. It was frustrating this match because it felt like Djokovic was only playing his best when he needed to, and I'm, I'm curious. I'd be curious to know if he was feeling some physically off in some way or something because he really peaked only when he needed to. Like he was getting beaten in terms of like total points badly throughout this entire match. And this is some people, I. Usually on TV, they only show the total points graphic when it's even, which is almost always stupid, unless like the score shows that it's not True, that. If yeah. it's like five all in the third, and oh, they've also won the same number of points, it's like, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> but when, when Federer's won like 12, 15, 16, 17 more points than Djokovic the whole way, and it's still like behind him on the scoreboard most of the way, it shows that Djokovic just showed up at the best moments. And Federer did play a notably bad third set tiebreak in this, in this five set final. Um, that was bad, and, and when he went up match points in eight seven, the second match point was just that like just like a wish, a, a wish and a prayer approach. It was just like let me serve and hit like a pretty crappy approach. It was like, left a really easy passing shot All for Djokovic. Day long for Novak, yeah. yeah, and just like the whole, I don't know. To me, it was really good, like intense theater. Was it at all strokes of genius? No, no, it was not. It was it was strokes of like. This is pretty good. The other thing is strokes of have to strokes of have to, but also <laughs> strokes of not need to, because to me, this is, and maybe this is just me being whatever. I don't know. But like, to me, ben. I had arguments with this, with this, uh, with this, uh, with not people mm. to me, this match felt low stakes huh. in a weird way for a slam no, final. But that's not true though. I mean, because, because it was, let you me... were telling me it was a massive swing match right. with the records and stuff. So I can tell myself, okay. but so basically, yeah. So in the records, if Federer had won, the top three, big three in the all-time slam leaderboard wouldn't spaced up by threes. Federer would be at 21, Nadal 18, Djokovic 15. If Djokovic won, they only spaced up by twos. It'd be much closer. It'd be Federer it's at 20. It's a big swing point. Yeah, it's a big swing point. All that is to say, yes, it's a big swing point, and I think it will be shown as a big match, like, in five years. But in the moment, the hoofbeats of Djokovic still being still four slams back of Federer, are they that loud on the horizon? It's not about being four slams behind Federer. It's being about being two behind Rafa. I know, but at the same Knowing th that he can win on all four but surfaces and Rafa's time, got rolling arrows. I just feel like Federer has so much chill, has so much whatever the tennis equivalent of BDE is, that <laughs> I just don't think that he's up nights worrying about it at all passing him. No, I just no, don't I think so, yeah, and, and no, so and sure. so it's so di it's so different to me than Serena and twenty four, right, yeah, yeah. which really feels like a preoccupation, and it's been something that's been hanging over her for a long time, fairly because or unfairly, she's, because she's and she's also it. embraced it yeah, yeah. in some way. Federer being ahead of Nadal, has he ever said it's a priority to finish ahead of Nadal? No, has Nadal ever said it's a priority to finish ahead of Federer? Not really openly. No, has Djokovic said that? Not really openly either. So for me, like. Again, I think in the future, when they're all retired, people will point this as a pivotal swing match that may decide when what order they're on that podium at the when all is said and done. But in the moment, did it did it feel like life or death to me? Not really. No, I feel like they were all chill. At the end, like all their kids were in the box clapping, and it was just kind of like a nice or like company picnic. It was, you know, it was to me, it was just like a day at the park, and they're playing tennis, and it went on for a long time, and it was it was fine, and they got a thirteen twelve tiebreak, which is a whole new thing. And yeah, I don't know. It, it, it was it was. 
good, not great to me. Yeah, no, I think that the way that you described it initially is, is dead on, which is that it was great theater. Yeah, I mean, I think tension that, was good. There was the tension. Scoreboard was tension. Which, I, which I will say, and I was thinking about this as I was watching Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows while also watching this match, but... Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the later ones. Do they hold up? I like them. I really like the first Deathly Hallows. The second one's really good just because of the grand fight scene and whatever. uh, I I think I saw saw the first. I read all the. the, No, no, I read all the books, the Harry Mm -hmm. Potter books. I think I saw Harry Potter 1 and Harry Potter 3. Oh, the movies? Maybe 4. I think I saw 4. Yeah, movies. I've never read the books. I really like the movies. Yeah, I'm I'm literate. I'm not going to read about magic shit. Sorry, great. but I'll watch it. it, was, it was um, cool. And I, it has all the actors that I really Green enjoy. Gringotts and such. Diagon Alley. Who thinks that that's what that word is pronounced like? Anyways, um, but yeah, no, I mean, but I was thinking the whole time that it was incredibly tense and it was, you know, very dramatic in every way. The tennis was in and out at times. Oh, completely out in the second set, for, for example. Sure. But the thing that I kept thinking was, who cares? Right? Like, so... When we talk about men's matches, women's matches, whatever, and people are like, oh, the quality is amazing. Who gives a shit? Honestly. Like, at the end of the day, you want a compelling match. You want to be riveted for how much ever time those players yeah. are on the court. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a blowout. It could still be riveting. To me, I was thoroughly this riveted. This match still riveted. For, fi- for 56 minutes with Simona and Serena, yeah, okay. I was riveted. Point by point, I just kept waiting for Simona to blink. I kept waiting for Serena to lift up. I kept being in awe by what the tennis that, that Simona was bringing and what she was executing and what was at stake in that match. I was still riveted for that entire time. Here, this match, I can't. I kind of can't went in, in and out. It doesn't mean that it wasn't riveting. It was. That final set was definitely riveting. The first set I thought was riveting as well. And this goes back to the Rafa-Federer match as well, which I don't think was a great match. No. But the way that it ended in that final game... With Rafa having break points, and you kind of felt like very similar to like the Murray match against Novak when he won him for the first time. That oh, if Rafa breaks here, this could completely flip. That there was drama, but that left a taste in your mouth that was actually not accurate of the entire meal that you just had. That for two and a half, for two point nine sets in the middle there, or one point nine sets in the middle there, it was kind of crap. It wasn't. It wasn't fun to watch. Rafa wasn't playing well. Federer was playing fine, and then there was a little bit of drama at the end. And he's like, oh, that was amazing. Then this match, again, in and out at times, that neither player playing that great at any time. Fatigue definitely setting in into the final set. Yep. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing all these best Wimbledon final ever. What the freak are you talking about, Fernando Verdasco? 2008 was so much better. And I don't even love 2008. Oh, it was better. My favorite Wimbledon final of this century is 09. Well, sure. Yes. Roddick Federer was nuts. For me, Roddick Federer, yeah. For, it's, it's, still, it's still my one. Um, no, 100%. Yeah. But, like, but it was just weird to see this vested and it just seemed so intentional and kind of disingenuous this vested interest in elevating this thing that you saw because we have been watching it for five hours you don't want to say that you watched something for five hours that didn't matter that that's telling on yourself so you want to elevate it into this thing but honestly neither of those two players played great at the same time it was incredible what novak did i will always say this to me what sets him apart of roger and rafa is that he has this amazing ability to play just well enough to win matches. This isn't to say that he's not good enough to blow people out, but yeah. he manages his tournament so well. He never really looks like he doesn't do the Rafa thing where he was like blowing people out for five matches and then like completely looks like 
kind of like up against it in, the, in his sixth match against Rof, in, against Roger and didn't even come close to bringing that level. No. Novak has this way against RBA. It was the same thing. He just did. He knows how to manage his matches. He knows how to manage his tournament in a way that I don't think the other players. I mean, Peak Federer used to be able to do it, but you know where the score lines don't look crazy impressive. But he's just managing, 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 and he surges when he needs to. This is a, it's he, amazing. He always looks in control. Yes, like, 100%. And, and that's the thing. Like, I never doubt. I never thought that Ro- Roger was going to win that match, except for the two break, two match. Points. I was surprised when it was like, oh my gosh, Roger's going to win this. When it, when he broke for eight seven in the fifth, I was like. Honestly, I didn't see this coming. Like, okay, right. okay, he's going to win. Like, okay, like, huh. I'm not preparing myself for this, but good for you, Roger. You did good. Good for you. And then when he good lost. For you, not for me. <laughs> didn't say not for me. I was happy. I was not expressing an opinion either way. I know. But when he, and then when he lost it, it was like, yeah, I felt right. I didn't think Djokovic was really going <laughs> to lose. Honestly. Even, Honestly, he, I never thought that Novak was going to lose, except for maybe for that 30 seconds. Yeah. When, when he hit, when Federer hit like a good serve on that second match point. In that momentary moment before Roger hit his next shot, which was bad. Uh, you know, yeah. So, anyway, like I said, to me, like, it was just, like, it was, it was long. It was not amazing quality, but it was compelling. And, yeah, and a lot of people felt like, – I just feel like, again, with these two guys, does Novak Djokovic go to sleep tonight feeling immensely different about himself? That he's won 16 Grand Slams compared to 15, and yet remains in third place overall. No, but that's not how he thinks about it. I I think that he does feel different. Like, he does feel pretty damn good about himself. That he walked out here, because we have to talk about the celebration, which to me was kind of like top five Wimbledon highlight of this year. I thought Describe it. Describe it. So match point, Novak wins. He doesn't react. He just kind of has this tense grin on his face. He walks slowly to the net. It was kind of a shit-eating grin, wasn't it? It was amazing. I (laughs) fucking loved it. He goes to the net shakes hands oh you're dude whatever does the whole tummy <laughs> pat thing that the bros do now it's i think that's really weird the whole like touching each other's bellies i don't know anyways and then whatever walks back shakes hands walks back to the middle of the court looks at the crowd surveys it with again same shit eating grin le- kind of nods does this like his chins jutted out it's beautiful i loved every single second of it like bends down takes some looks up at the crowd again then like Grabs some grass, eats it as is per his one. Chewing, thinking, does not do the ruminating like a cow. Does not does not do the boob throw. No, the boobs. He was not giving any love to the crowd. He said, crowd. "You do not deserve my nourishing it was, boobs." It was basically the in, the celebration version of the dot that he drew on the camera. Uh, where was that? In, uh, in London, twenty fourteen. Yes. To me, the dot is Djokovic's purest essence. I <laughs> I'm dead serious. I did my little emoji graphic when he won today. And like Frederick, I have a little goat, like Nadal, I have a little like bowl. It's very cute, whatever. <laughs> and for Djokovic, I have a fucking dot. Because <laughs> it to me sense. is the most honest moment of Djokovic ever. Like Djokovic is a man who seethes, right? And, I and love that it. is, and that is so often his authentic self. And he did this when he won 2015 U.S. Yeah. Open too. It's in uh, Return Winner, yeah. his Twitter user Return Winner. It's like her pinned tweet, I think, mm-hmm. hit the video of him winning. And the same sort of thing where he like points himself to me, like I won. No one else wanted me to win. I won. Okay. But that's what I loved about <laughs> and it. And sort of like shrugs. His entire celebration yeah. was, I mean, if you just watch it, at least the way that I interpret it, and I was cackling as I was watching this, was, your scheduling screwed me over. You don't like me. Like, like Roger and Rafa were constantly put on center court, and he was put on number one court. Mm. Like, the little things like that. So, you didn't treat me like the number one seed. You, and th- I'm not saying this is true in fact. I'm saying that this is, like, what I could imagine. It's true. It's true. It's true. Y'all booed me. Y'all, I know for a fact, Oh, they had the slightest to chance to boo him, and they booed him. There was yeah. no reason to Y'all boo him. Y'all don't want me to win this entire stadium. Clapped my Y'all double faults. Y'all want him. He clapped my double faults. 
every single time I did an amazing thing, if I dove on the, the lawn and hit an amazing forehand volley, you barely acknowledged it. And I saw it and I knew it and I saw you guys. This is me like walking into your house, like stealing, like, you know, whatever, your breaking into your safe and stealing like 10 br bricks of gold and just like Ocean's Eleven style being like, yeah, I did that and you don't want it and I don't care. And it was great. I love that Novak. I really do. I love the true authentic. And I'm not saying he's not the other things. I, I know that Novak can be a nice guy. I know that he's like thoughtful and incredibly amb ambassadorial and all these sorts of things. But at his purest essence, back in 2006, 2007, my favorite Novak was Villain Novak. And I feel like this Selly was like Villain Novak. And for me, personally as a tennis fan, I enjoyed every single freaking second of it. You know who I'm sure to bring it full circle and agree, you know who I'm sure would want Villain Novak to come back? Mm is Nick Kyrgios. Yes. Because it's he the same thing. He, he would respect that. He would respect that. He was that. like, that's you. That's yeah. you. Not the boob throw. The boob throw feels performed. This, yes. Anyway, we're on the same page with Djokovic. Djokovic, it's obviously hard to embrace your villainy and at the same time, because no one wants to be a villain, per se. It's not really his thing. But it is factually what this world has decided you are. And if you want to just resist, stop resisting, honestly. Just do your thing. Live your do life. Do your thing. Win your slams. Beat, up, beat them all. And that's the beautiful thing about tennis. Best revenge is, is your paper, Novak. Exactly. You that bitch causing all that conversation. Always stay gracious. The best revenge is your paper. But the, the thing about tennis is that what I have always loved about the sport is that it is open. So long as you have the points, you get in. No one can stop you from doing whatever you want to do. Right? Like if you were a jerk and you were on a team sport, that coach could bench you. Somebody right. could trade you. People can freeze you out. Obviously, we see that with Kaepernick, who's not a jerk. But I'm just saying that, like, this is the control that teams have. In tennis, you can literally, so long, it is open, you have earned your way in, you get to play, and you get to go and take $3 million off of these people who, like, have, like, do not want you to win at all. Yep. That's a delicious feeling. It's a delicious yeah. feeling. It's, it's great. I love that. I mean, Alex Morgan, you know, T-SIP. He should have done the T-SIP. Speaking of people taking the T-SIP is great. Uh, people. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, speaking of people taking money, um, I would like to talk about the thing that I cared most about in this tournament, which was I didn't <laughs> expect a match that I didn't watch live, um, which was a first-round encounter on lines 91 and 92 of the draw mm. uh, between uh, Joe Wilfred Tsonga and Bernard Tomic. Uh, Tsonga won 6-2, 6-1, 6 which is not a shocking scoreline when you say it out loud. 2-1 one, one and 4. It's almost like a, one of those things, I, I, one of my favorite things in tennis to say is mockingly call a score a gentleman's. Yeah, like, exactly. A, a gentleman's 2-1-4. A, a gentleman's 2-1-4. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It's like, it's fine. You feel like he lost in 58 minutes. Okay, that's very fast. That's a fast match. Um, that's the same length as the first set of this Federer-Djokovic tiebreak thing. Um, then the tournament decides, and it announces a couple days later, they revoked 100%, 100% of Bernard Tomic's prize money because they did not think that he achieved the correct first round performance and did not perform up to grand slam levels what does that mean not further defined they don't say they're not going to elaborate they don't know to me <laughs> this is the second time in the summer that they've enacted this rule i wrote a story with this from new york times goes into some more detail about it they also use it for anna tadishvili they took away 100 percent of her prize money after she came back at the french open and uh lost six Love 6-1, I think, or 1-in-love, love, love I forget which order it is, to Maria Sakari in the first round. Maria Sakari, who had led the tour in clay court wins going into the French Open. 
um, lost her badly, and, two day, and the next day they told her she wasn't getting any prize money, also because they thought that she wasn't ready, essentially. There's a little more info available on that one, that she wasn't ready to compete at a Grand Slam level. Um, to me, this is, and I'm not somebody who's, like, with Novak, speaking of Novak, like, banging the union drum, like, players deserve more money. Like, that's not, like, that's not something I agree to, you know, uh, blank check all those statements. To me, this t some tournaments subjectively deciding after the fact that someone doesn't deserve the money that they're being promised for their work out of a subjective decision that they didn't play in the right way uh, is wildly <laughs> bad labor practices. It is wage theft. It is a problem. And if I was, you know, whatever populist on the ATP tour locker room, even though, and this is the thing with Tomic, Tomic is a very unsympathetic figure in this. He's obviously a punchline. He's the great, great nickname of Tomic the Tom Tank Engine, which is spectacular. There's some, like, really good, I was Googling, there's some oh, really the good, yeah, no, there's, yeah. no, the, the oh. image is great. The image but, is amazing. <laughs> Photoshop of Bernie's face, <laughs> it's really good. But there's, like, some, like, radio spots they did on, like, because Australians <laughs> like tennis and, like, even more mocking Tomic, and they did some, like, soundtrack of, like, you know, Ringo Starr type voice. I think he did the narration for Tomic the Tank or Shining Time Station, whatever it is. Anyway, there's really good Tomic the Tank Engine mockery out there. But to me, like, I think this is such a ridiculously slippery slope to start saying after someone plays and did not get warned mid-match for lack of effort, which is one of the – it's a code violation that you can give. Uh, Sharon Pyro Carlos Ramos, interestingly, did not give that code violation during this match. Um, and to say later on, we think you deserve no money because we don't like how you went about your match or something. A match in which he won seven games, won at one point 16 consecutive points on his serve, which also like, Tom, Songa, what are you doing in this match? Um, <laughs> Songa also won 20 consecutive points on his serve. It was a weird match. It was a Tom match. Tommy plays weird matches. And anyway, to me, I am very uncomfortable with it and think that it is something that if I was a player, I would absolutely normaray the shit out of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I will be honest. Um, obviously, I'm a WTA employee and WTA yeah. reporter. This is a Grand I, Slam rule. No, yeah, this is a, 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 a Grand Slam rule. And I will be completely honest that going into the into the French Open, I thought that you only got fined if you retired from before, your first round match. That had been the case before. They'd never used yeah, it the way so for these completed I, matches I had never before. known that someone really got the thing. I just, I genuinely, I didn't know that that was the rule. It had never been used that way before. subjectively judge you as opposed to something very objective, which is that you came, you didn't play the full match, you retired with a pre-existing injury. Of course, we're going to take half your money or full your, your full money, especially with the rule that's in place that if you had withdrawn, yeah. you would have gotten 50% which, and whatever. Sidebar on that, I will also add, I think that has its problems too, because like, for example, Misha Zverev was the first one who got that yeah, fine. Yeah. When it, the first term of this rule was being used, 2018 Australian Open, Misha Zverev defending quarterfinal points of that tournament has the flu or some sort of illness like that, goes out, tries to play against Yun Chung, uh, retires after a set and a half, just like couldn't go on. And what you're saying to him in this rule is you shouldn't have even tried, which to me is so anti-sports. Like to be like, I'm sick, but I feel like I can go out there. And he was down like six three, like four two or something like that when he yeah. retired. Like I don't know. To me, like to say like you and this is they said Tadish Fili too. Tadish Fili is saying you shouldn't have tried. It's it's it's, it's that, weird it's that to me. thing of like, you know, everybody's kind of talking. I mean, Vashik Pospisil keeps talking about it, and all the you know, when it's people talk about like player unions and what can be done with ATP player money or, I mean, whatever of like, oh, you know, tennis players should be salaried. 
if you want to stop this, then that's how you do yeah. it. Is that you salary tennis players that if you're ranked at a certain po- base rate, that that's the money that you get for the season, and you can kind of do. And then then if then they're taking advantage and trying to double dip, then you can, you know, kind of step in and say, hold on, like you you haven't lost money. We are actually guaranteeing you money. So like that allows us to have more competitive integrity within our tournament. So people who are fit and ready to go and, and put together the the best product going forward. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, that was my only comment. It's just that I just really didn't know that there was actually a subjective measure to it. I really thought that even if the objective measure is unfair, as you're arguing, that at least it was objective. Yeah, it, could, it, it definitely, I mean? it definitely like, had that trigger point. Like, we'll look at retirements. And if it was a match, like, I remember when it first happened, or no, this is before, whatever. It happened because there were a bunch of matches at Wimbledon 2017 where guys retired first round who were clearly injured, including two back-to-back matches between the two finalists this year, Djokovic and Federer, and their opponents retired midway through the second set. Dolgopolov especially had, like, a ridiculous retirement against Federer, where he was just losing, and literally Federer hit a drop shot. <laughs> Dolgopolov, like, ran forward to try to get it, couldn't get it. And he was like, just well, I'm going. at the net anyway. I'll just shake your hand and be done. And the crowd <laughs> was like, what is going on here? So that was a bad look, and I understand. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, yeah, to me, I said my piece on, on Tomic. I think that that's dodgy, and I hope that he and Tedis really both win their appeals and that they think more about before. Is Tomic appealing? Yes, it's appealing. Oh, okay. um, the and, and and to the point of, you know, Kyrgios, we didn't really get into Kyrgios at all. It was, like I said it was good. It is still good. Um, Kyrgios tactically tanked the fourth set of his first-round match against Jordan Thompson, which, by the way, was a great match. That 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 one's one where like stakes felt high in that match. Or to get to play Nadal, like because he was under real threat from from Thompson, who had a really good grass season this year. Um, he tanked the fourth set and came back and won the fifth. So uh, Djokovic today, at some point, stopped trying in the second set today. And Federer in the second set against Nadal. Yeah, last two games at minimum, he just wasn't. He was like, yeah, okay. Djokovic won twelve points today in the second set against Federer, which is fewer points than. Tomic won each of the three sets. Tomic won more than 12, won 13, 13, and Yikes. then, like, something more than that. In the set, so, like, again, so then it just becomes, like, if if it, if a effort is so disgraceful in a first-round match that deserves no money, but you can still do it in a Grand Slam final and win the match, because Tomic wasn't tanking at the end. If he'd thrown away the last few points and it's like, I'm just walking off a score, like, whatever, he, he that was his closest set was the last set. He did get broken in the last game of the match, but, like, until then, he got to 5-4, like, and how bad are you tanking if you're playing a Grand Slam, winning seven games off Songa, who's a real player? Like, what do what you say? And Songa was like, I feel insulted by this. That, like, <laughs> you think I wasn't having to try to beat Tomic, who's a very disconcerting, weird, erratic player to play. Like, I had to focus during that match and, like, make sure I didn't get brought down to his weird level, which is totally true and fair. Anyway, that's my soapbox for this. Like, I'm, like I said, I'm not normally, like, a player writes, you know, we deserve revenues. That's not my take, really, per se. I think there should be, I agree with the whole different top topic for a different time. Like, the whole salary thing, I think, is useful and prize money is flawed as a payment structure. I think it sure. leads to weird outcomes and weird incentives and really big imbalances. I don't think you should get $50,000 for losing first round of a tournament. That's nuts. But another time, another place. Other men's thoughts? Other tournament thoughts? Andy Murray's back. Serena, that was fun. Yeah. Uh, Serena and Andy was, was fun mixed. It, it just underlines my... I've said it a gazillion times. I will continue to say it. I think that the best Grand Slam structure that you have, and this would apply to Indian Wells, this would apply to Miami, this would apply to any time you have a Joint Masters uh, mandatory, is best of three across the board, read do the prize money structure to incentivize participation within doubles and mixed doubles. If you want to, rewrite the rules. Make it mandatory. I don't care. But I think that the in general, the best product that this sport has is when these top players play all three disciplines 
singles, doubles, mixed. Which they used to through the which 70s. Which they used to yeah. do. This is not a new thing. And look, I mean, look at all of the excitement that, that Serena and Andy got. Look at all the excitement whenever we are in other slams where, like, two players play together. Or when we used to do Indian Wells Miami and Indian Wells in particular, when, when uh, Federer would play with Stan or when Rafa would play doubles with, with Mark Lopez. It creates excitement. And it Murray gives, Bros, whatever. And it, and Murray Bros, and it gives fans, or Murray would play doubles with Djokovic. It would give fans an opportunity to see those players more times than just in their singles. You get seven chances to see Rafa Nadal. What if you played all three all three disciplines? You would see, you'd get so many more opportunities to see him and Federer and Novak. And I get the, the romantic ideal of the best of five. I really, really do. But what if that, as a package, is a beautiful thing. I mean, Laver Cup is baking on that when you have, oh, Rafa and Roger are going to play doubles together. There's no reason that can't happen on the tour level. There's no reason whatsoever. Hotman Cup, amazing. Oh, you know, Federer and Benchich. Oh, Serena and, and Tiafo. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> but Serena versus Federer. <laughs> Serena versus Federer. We yeah. want to see it. And the market is already there and it's proven. Why not, why not rejigger the sport? To, to, to elevate that. Like, why, why? We have an opportunity as a sport of tennis to have men and women competing side by side against each other. No other sport fucking has that. And we can do it. There's no reason we can't, except for tradition, except for this idea of like, oh, but, but this, well, you know what? There's going to come a time where these, these, these great players that float these events and float these tours are no longer playing. And actually what's going to need to be happening is that there is more cross-pollinization between both tours and more cooperation and actually leveraging against each other to elevate the whole thing. And when that time comes, I don't even want to hear about like, oh, we should have done this 10 years ago. Yeah, no shit. I was telling you this on the podcast since the, uh, I just can't. Like I just <laughs> watching the excitement about Serena, Andy and will they, won't they, blah, blah. It just completely doubled down on this idea. Yeah. And it is just and so the- frustrating to me that the sport just won't do it. Now, totally. Why? Shout out to Mark Ein, who's the Washington yes. director, who is legitimately very serious about adding mixed doubles in some form to Washington. And which, I know and Larry Ellison has talked about it in Indian yeah. Wells. But like, just do it. Have a cash tournament there, and it's, it is a thing with the tours. If it was, because obviously these tours don't always cooperate as well as they could. Understatement. It would have to be like run by some who would take responsibility for it. Right. Would it be an ATP event, WTA event? Would they actually work together? Would they have like one? Like alternate who did it would who knows what they would do for running the right. mix. It would right. be it would take take a little are, bit of learning and logistical problems. Logistical of trying to put it together. Logistical hurdles, but I don't think they're like walls. I think they are hurdles that can be cleared with a little bit of effort. If it, if if, if the that, will I mean, is there, you know, I've I've heard people say about golf tournaments they have the pro am. Yeah. You know, and they say, oh, the pro am is actually a really big deal, which is that professional golfers, you know, the top golfers play with amateurs. They play around. It allows the 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 Sponsor, professional golf. Big money. It's sponsors. big money sponsors. So there's actually money involved. It helps the, the the tournaments, but also it helps the players can kind of walk the course. Get familiar with and it and get yeah. familiar with it, and it's great. So you have like mixed doubles. Maybe you do that. Like at Indian Wells, Miami, you have a field of 16 teams and you fund it privately. And it has nothing to do with, I, I, I'm i saying all this without knowing for sure what the rules are, whether or not this is actually legit and legal. I have no idea yeah. whether things have to be sanctioned, but like, you know, or an eight even team, like a, even like a kind of like two group knockout at the Indian at, at group play Indian Wells. You know? Indian Wells should a thousand percent do this. Um, it's a two week tournament and you don't need those it's two just, weeks. It's the thing I point out whenever I do stories about the mixed doubles is that all these other sports, whether it's swimming, whether it's luge, um, which is shout out to that Carrillo HBO sketch you haven't seen again. Oh, with amazing. The, oh, it's the so good. Best. So good. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so good. Uh, that uh, all these other sports, skiing, snowboard racing, uh, God knows what else, like, are all inventing mixed events. They're all coming up with completely made-up mixed events because they are so desperate for this cool, new, modern men and women together thing, which tennis invented. And tennis is going away from it in this way at, at, with mixed doubles floundering and getting, like, no prize money. Prize money never goes up in mixed doubles. It explodes everywhere else, and it's stagnant in Serena mixed doubles. Serena and Andy got 3,500 pounds oh, each. It's insulting. For, what, for the value that they provided for selling to out, the tournament. For packing out center court twice. That's nuts, you know? I mean, like, that's the thing. Is like, so... You know, even if there's a simple way of like, okay, maybe you don't make it a full event, I don't know, but you know, a two group knockout, you incentivize it, you, you privatize that prize money, you invite it's an invitational, you get the players to play. Like, that's such a huge value boost quick, for the money that you're putting in, I think. My quick take mm. uh, this is a, a bit of a hot take just because I don't want to go further into it, but one thought like Indian Wells, Miami, other mixed tournaments of similar where they're like comparable value, like Cincinnati. Um, uh, Rome, Madrid, don't even have same-sex doubles, mixed only. Oh my! Give ranking points for That's it. A hot take. It's the thing. Just do it at these at these tournaments. We the same way like on Wednesdays we wear pink, in Rome, Madrid, <laughs> we play mixed. I mean, look. I mean, I've, I'd have to think about it a little bit more. But there, there, I could see that there's a colorable argument that that is a far more valuable product. Mix should absolutely have ranking points, by the way. Levels. I don't understand why it doesn't. Um, but, you know, like, you look at Indian Wells, right, in Miami. Like, the top seeds, like Roger, Rafa, Serena, Simona, you know, all of them, they don't play until the weekend. Yep. The way that that's, you know, the way that that tournament is And you have the whole first week and fans are there. Why not? If you get Federer and Nadal, for example playing doubles together in Miami or Andy Wells. That is a night sessionable match. When Andy and Novak played doubles in Miami, I still remember because I was there. There, It was out on Grand, not Grandstand, but it was like a, a tertiary court. And the line was out of control. Yeah. Or like when Delpo plays doubles. I mean, it doesn't even have to be these blockbuster um, no. pairings, but but depending on your, your uh, demographic, it could just be like, here is another opportunity to see your favorite singles player on a tennis court. In a different environment. A little more a intimate court, feeling. A, yeah, like a general being mission social, court, being do, social, being memeable interactions. So people, yeah. lo- they weren't like Serena and Andy together, which was, they were great together. Again, they were an interesting pairing because they admitted both of them, they don't know each other that well. They're not like friends. They're not like, like in terms of like people who are close friends on tour. They're like people who have respect for each other, but aren't like work in different departments of the, of the office and don't really know each other that well, but are both highly thought of in their fields. Uh, <laughs> and so when they got together, like there weren't like meaningful moments, but like so many of the times, like when it's like friggin' like the, one of the best ones for this at Hotman Cup is like Zverev and Kerber. <laughs> yeah. Because Zverev is acting like such a little twit out there. So they're just being like, hey, you want some candy, Angie? After he shows up like 10 minutes late, Angie just like rolls her eyes, like get yeah. in the car, come on, we're going. That yeah. kind of attitude. It's great. It's just like good content all around. I will say the other thing which got pointed out, I think, in press, and we talked about it before she asked it, but one of the best things about the Serena Murray experience was seeing them do press conferences together mm. because, oh my gosh, I've been to, I was counting, I'm pretty sure, like 100 plus easily of each of their press conferences solo yeah. over the years. And their press conferences, every player's press conferences are unique, have their own sort of flavor, which are in part dictated by the player and their kind of answers and their reputation and their mood and also by the kind of media they get and who's covering them and who's interested in what. And there's like... Serena and Murray are pretty diametric in terms of like what kind of press conferences they have. And so seeing them merge and seeing them each hear what kind of questions the other one gets routinely was like was fascinating to me. I, I really I thought that was wonderful. And I would love to see like that ex- exchange continue into other things. I would love to see like 
Nadal and Sloan Stevens sit through each other's press conferences, like on a day. It's like, or like who are other people who are like distinctly different, whoever they are, like whether it's Djokovic and like, um, who's like a, who's like a good example, Djokovic and I don't know, Stritzova, who cares, whoever, like people who just like, cause I feel like players, as much as they all care about the media and they do, they do, they do. Um, they don't understand like how much it is like a unique experience to them. Yeah. And like how they do, you do control your environment and you can dictate things. And the way that like Serena would hear the kind of questions that Andy got and how much he was willing to answer and not willing to answer and how different he would be. It was, it was interesting. It was, it was all fascinating and I, I enjoyed it greatly. And, uh, hope they do it again. I don't think they'll do it again, but I would love for them to in this new mixed driven universe. Cause honestly it's yeah. the most quintessentially tennis format there is. It is when I feel like tennis is at its most tennis is when there's mixed doubles happening. And it's what tennis shout has that no one else can get, can even come close to. Shout out. Yes, exactly. Thing. Shout out to Yelena Ostapenko <laughs> also, who in her own Killing Eve way destroyed Robert Linstead repeatedly. And it was great. And she also hit Alizé Cornet. And what I was told was the most watched video on like Wimbledon social media, official social media, this tournament was Yelena Otsmenko serving the ball and hitting Cornet on the fly. Would watch it nonstop for the next 48. It's great. It's great. It's great. It's, but this is the thing. It's like, because it's unique. It's a thing that you don't get to see. And, you know, for me, like, again, like just even going back and thinking about it even more, like having these invitationals of eight teams or 12 teams and you have groups, which means that you see these players, like, you know, players can't just like tank a match Hopping and like they're so out of it. Hopping, it you know so what I mean? Perfect. Like you force them to play, yeah. you know, a minimum of three mixed matches or two mixed matches. It's great. And, you know, tennis has this, such a great opportunity, especially right now with, with the way the conversation is and to be the front runner and to be so progressive in that way. And the fact that it just doesn't want it is always just so disappointing. So disappointing in terms of like showing your true colors and, you know, the, yeah, I don't know. It's yep. just, I, I would love to see it. Oh, for example, the fact that like Tennis Australia, which had Hotman Cup, has now uh, got rid of Hotman Cup and added two men's only mixed team events to its creational portfolio to me is just thumb down emoji. I think it's just, I think it's just off base and it's a great opportunity for tennis to be at its most tennisful. And with that, we've been full of tennis ourselves too. Other thoughts on as our European trips come to a close here? I've been here since Rome. You went home in between uh, France and yeah, no. uh, England. No, I'm looking forward to the, how the season finishes. I'm, look, I'm definitely looking forward to the, the North American hardcourt swing and seeing kind of, you know, I mean, we forget at this point that Ash Barney was here. We forget at this point that Naomi Osaka was here, that oh, Petra Kvitova was here. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot going on. And same with on the guy's side with the Sitsipasas and, and, and um, Felix and Chapo and it's all of them. Team. And team losing early. I do think that this tournament is, is a lot of times a little bit of a one-off. I think that it takes you time to learn how to play on grass. And so when you see young players crash out, like way too much is made of it. So I am looking forward to finishing and getting back onto what is a neutral surface that everybody kind of knows how to play on and, and resetting or recalibrating what the narratives are. Because I do think that in a lot of ways, there's a lot of like weird panic around a lot of different players. And I'm not like so confident as to say like everybody's full of crap about it but at the same time like i'm very much like let's wait and see after toronto after cincinnati kind of where things are at you mean osaka no like sits a pass as well like mm. uh, zvera team felix i mean all the young players that i mentioned benchage like there's a lot of people who are like kind of like oh they're slumping i'm like are they they had one freaking bad term it just happens to be wimbledon which y'all care about but like calm down like it, it, some players yeah the panic is maybe a little bit higher than others so 
you know, this is still a season where there has been, despite, you know, the domination of the big three at the, at the majors, a pretty good amount of parity um, on the tour level. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, because I always feel like the, the French Open and Wimbledon, like from, from Paris until now, is like this weird slam heavy, you know, time. And, and I'm just looking forward to getting back to the tour level and, and kind of getting a few more data points and seeing the players play under those circumstances differently because it's different so yeah it is a reset it's a reset and i'm I'm ready to reset i as much as i appreciate kind of the novelty of playing on clay and grass i'm i'm ready to go back to hard courts it's been a while there we go i like that novelty surface grass it's good it's good thank you guys for listening to no challenges remaining if you want to follow along when you're not listening to us, uh, do so by following us on Twitter. Probably best way, NCR underscore tennis. We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at Ben Rothenberg. Courtney is at 40 Deuce Twits. And also at WTA underscore insider for all of the insider content you need there. She also did a crossover. I, mean, I was going to say it when you were talking about the whole, it was like Murray and uh, the 2013 moment with the thing. Because I was like, I heard you said that on tennis podcast. So you did a crossover set with them, which was lovely our pals there who do yeomanly work doing daily podcasts at this tournament we did it once we We did did it it once at 2016 australian open we died and i was i really enjoyed doing it but i look back like how on earth did i do that we died it was crazy so good for you not for us (laughs) tennis podcast good work um and other shows too body serve whoever else is out there yeah uh, we see them in Cincy this year, probably, right? Yeah, hopefully, hope so. hopefully hope we we'll see hope them. So, yeah. And yeah, that's about it. We'll see you guys from stateside wherever we reconvene next. Probably in Cincinnati, realistically. Take us when we're together next. Um, yeah. See you guys then. Any other any other rant rave thoughts before we let you go? Um, should we give another shout out to the mind? I think we may have done it at the at Rolling Girls, but if you guys can find this card game called the Mind, uh, which is available all over the world. But I know it's, it's been sold out in the States for a while. But it's like a $15, $20 game. The rules are very simple. It'll sound stupid when you look it up. But actually, as Ben can confess, in playing it, it's kind of riveting in its own way. Uh, I would highly suggest it because it has been really fun to watch these boys duke it out in the mind. Not duke it out because it's cooperative, but it, it brings people together. <laughs> that's one thing it does <laughs> in rare occasions when it works it's beautiful when it doesn't work it's 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 mad it can be caustic but but it's it's great it's a good game yeah had you waited so long between that two and that 16 i could not not everybody's great level five gosh david anyway uh with that we um I, we wanted to i forget what the, what was the reason we we're gonna play jesus take the wheel as the outro <laughs> i forget what it was it was oh novak's fatalism Oh, yes, like Novak, the way Novak, like on like match points, just like closes his eyes and swings. Well, but we were, it all comes out, that's saying it a little bit too simplistic. We were having this conversation with a bunch of other reporters about whether or not we think that Novak's ability to play so well down match points has to do with his ability to step up and be courageous and like take the wheel, or whether or not we think that it's a little bit of this fatalism, it's which like is nihilistic very, almost. Yeah, of just kind of like, I'm over it. I'm just going to like hit the shit out of the ball, or like I'm just kind of like mentally checked out and he yeah. just plays really well. So that's when you're suggesting to play Jesus Take the Wheel came up. So that's what we're doing. Kind of a bop. <laughs> it's an amazing bop. I don't even like Carrie Underwood, but it's a bop. Bye, guys. Bye. I've been living my life. I know I've got to change. So from now on tonight, Jesus Take the Wheel.